Welcome back, everybody. Another episode of You Make Me Sick, a podcast dedicated to pathogenic microorganisms and other things that can make you sick. Uh, thank you all for listening, first off. Today, we are going to talk about filoviruses. Filoviruses, uh, there's really only three of them that are known. There's the Quavovirus, the Marburg virus, and Ebola virus. We're going to concentrate just on the Marburg virus and Ebola virus. Uh, these are further kind of subdivided into six different species. I'm not going to get uh, super uh, into this different species. I'm just going to kind of separate the Marburg and the Ebola. And essentially just look at filoviruses just in general on their own. Uh, but if you're wondering, the six different species, there's Zaire, Sudan, Thai Forest, Bundabuglio, I probably completely slaughtered that, uh, Restin, and Bombali. Uh, of these six, there are two that uh, do not infect humans, or at least not yet anyway. That's the Restin and the Bombali strains. So filoviruses. <clears throat> they are called filoviruses just because of how they look under an electronic microscope. They're kind of filamented. Um, they're envelope particles. And in case anyone's wondering, they're a negative sense single-stranded RNA virus. And they're about uh, 19 kilobase pairs long, so just in case you were curious. So not super big. Uh, they are highly contagious, though, uh, and they spread uh, really quickly from human-to-human -human contact. Uh, they are considered a biosafety level 4 agent and have very high mortality rates, which we will get into here. So I guess let's start off at the beginning with these. So the, the first discovery of a filovirus was actually in 1967. Uh, this is the Marburg virus, and this occurred in Marburg, Germany. Uh, that's where the name Marburg virus comes from. Uh, there were actually a couple of different outbreaks that happened at the same time. So there was one in Marburg and Frankfurt, Germany, and then there was uh, another outbreak going on in Belgrade, Yugoslavia, right about the same time. Uh, all these out outbreaks kind of were all traced back to one source, and these were uh, all lab-related, and they were handling uh, grivet monkeys, which at the time were used for biomedical research and for vaccine research. Uh, these monkeys were imported from Africa, uh, which is where all of these viruses actually originate from. Uh, so that was Marburg virus. That was back in 1967. Ebola virus uh, happened almost 10 years later was the first discovery of that. That was 1976. Uh, there were also two consecutive outbreaks when that happened. Uh, there was one, uh, they were both in Central Africa, there was one that happened in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and then this was located near the Ebola River, and that's where the name Ebola virus came from. And then there was also a second outbreak that was occurring in what is now South Sudan, which is about 500 miles away. Uh, initially it was thought that uh, both of these came from one source, that somebody had traveled, but later genetic research found out they were actually separate strains. So that's kind of where those originated from. Uh, since these first outbreaks, uh, what was that, you know, almost 50 years ago, there have been 15 different Marburg virus outbreaks and there have been 33 different Ebola outbreaks. Uh, almost all of these just located in sub-Saharan Africa uh, in isolated rural areas, pretty much around the Sudan and Uganda, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo and Gabon. There has been currently going on right now, uh, the latest Marburg virus outbreak is actually occurring in Equatorial Guinea. And I think they had a couple of cases in Cameroon as well, but I'm not sure if they've confirmed if those are or are not uh, Marburg. So uh, 
like I said, these things, they pop up every now and again. I'll get to these outbreaks more later on and give you some statistics just about, uh, you know, how transmissible this, these diseases are and the fatality rates as well. So what about transmission? So uh, how are these actually transmitted? Uh, they initially, excuse me, initially start in fruit bats. Uh, like all these viruses, they all start with bats, right? Uh, these are the natural hosts, or thought to be the natural hosts anyway, of these phyloviruses. And then these are spread by bats, usually either biting or pass along some kind of bodily fluid or fecal matter. Uh, they can infect horses or monkeys or antelope or other wild animals. As far as transmission to humans, uh, humans usually initially get sick by either handling sick or infected forest animals. And then they pass these uh, viruses along to other humans usually with direct contact from infected body fluids. So phyloviruses in and of themselves, like how do they affect the cell? So let's say you're out there, you touch a, a, an animal that's got one of these phyloviruses, you get infected with it. Uh, once you've touched that bodily fluid, uh, kind of blood or whatever gets into your system, they infect a, a large range of cell types. So what they'll do is attach themselves to a host cell. Uh, the virus gets internalized. There's this process called macropenocytosis. Uh, there's another name for it called cell drinking. This is essentially where you have something that gets literally almost swallowed up by the cell. The cell will kind of swallow it into like a vesicle and cover it. And then it's imported into the cell. That's what these viruses do. That's how they're transported into the cell. Uh, once they get through that cell membrane, they get into the cell, uh, they get transported into the cell, and once they're in there, they hijack the cellular machinery. So a uh, typical viral you know, mechanism of action. They don't have their own DNA, so what they'll do is they'll hijack the cell's DNA, and then they'll replicate within the cell. Uh, once they're internalized into the cell, once they've hijacked that machinery and they replicate, they'll actually start to cause cell death. Um, after those cells die, they kind of explode, boom, and they spread all this other viral material throughout the other cell, throughout the body, and they start to infect other cells. Uh, this is why, especially these hemorrhagic fevers, you'll see that they, they infect multiple organ systems uh, and not just, uh, you know, they're not really just in one area of the body. They uh, tend to infect a lot of other areas. One of the hallmarks of this spread, or of the, of the spread of these cells, uh, or the viral particles into these cells, are the specific kind of organs that they infect. Specifically, they seem to infect the lymph nodes. Uh, from there, they can kind of travel through the lymph system. Uh, they hit the spleen, the liver, the thymus, and then other immunological tissues. And that's where they continue to multiply. Uh, there are autopsies that have shown that uh, often death occurs just from the, the necrosis or the cellular death of the tissues of the liver and the spleen particularly. And that's what also causes, uh, within the liver, uh, your liver regulates a lot of your clotting factors. So these hemorrhagic fevers, uh, you'll see a lot of clotting and bleeding disorders that uh, are kind of a byproduct of that liver involvement as well. So also once the cell's in there, um, other things that happens, or sorry, once the virus is in the cells, uh, other issues that happens is you have this kind of systemic inflammatory response. Uh, your body's immune system detects that it has a foreign invader, and then it releases these other cells to try and kill that, these cells called cytokines. The problem is when you have an over-release of these, it can actually attack body tissues and cause more harm than good. That's something we saw a lot uh, with COVID-19 and that's particularly a lot of the lung damage didn't come from the virus itself. 
but it came from just the body's immune response destroying healthy tissue uh, by these, uh, this what we call a cytokine cascade, where you have all these inflammatory cells that just kind of destroy good tissue. And that's where we saw a lot of uh, lung involvement with uh, COVID. Uh, with these uh, phyloviruses, uh, this happens, but it also happens in you know other organs in the body, as I mentioned, uh, some of those uh, immunological organs, but also the liver, kidneys. So after this happens, your body will kind of go into a shock state uh, there's nausea, vomiting, you'll have vascular leak, uh, so you're not able to kind of, your intravascular fluid kind of leaks out. Uh, you'll have all these kind of coagulation defects, so these bleeding and clotting disorders, and then you'll also see dehydration with that. So how do I know if I have Ebola or Marburg virus? Uh, essentially, if anybody who has been in close contact with somebody, people who come from these areas who show up with these uh, signs and symptoms, uh, there are special considerations that you have to take when actually trying to diagnose somebody with this. Uh, anybody who's traveled to an area that uh, is endemic for these viruses or have reported outbreaks, uh, it's important that they're screened really well, especially since they're so contagious. And uh, back in 2014, there was uh, the biggest, the largest Ebola outbreak on record. Uh, there were actually 11 confirmed Ebola cases that happened in the U.S. Uh, of those, seven of those originated outside the country. And I think if I was reading the data correctly, the other four happened uh, from contact once people were here. But uh, it just goes to show that even here in the United States, even being far away, these diseases can travel. Uh, which is why it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility to think this could be a pandemic-causing virus. Uh, just because it's, it does spread quickly. Um, Definitely not as concerning as something as COVID. COVID, for a couple of different reasons. COVID has uh, airborne spread through airborne particles. Uh, Ebola and Marburg are through contact. And then uh, with Ebola and Marburg, at least to date, uh, there haven't been any asymptomatic uh, contractions. So you haven't, nobody has contracted the disease uh, from somebody who's been asymptomatic. Somebody has to be showing signs and symptoms to actually spread it. Uh, whereas with COVID, you could have asymptomatic spread. But uh, still something that uh, it's still on the radar uh, of the CDC and the WHO as something that could potentially be, uh, you know, I don't want to necessarily pandemic causing, but def definitely an endemic uh, disease as we've seen in Africa. So uh, diagnosis can also be difficult just because the initial symptoms really mimic a lot of other diseases, especially diseases that are uh, native to parts of Africa. Uh, it can be mistaken for malaria or typhoid fever or the flu. Uh, there's also another hemorrhagic fever called Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever. So it can also be uh, diagnosed as that as well. Uh, cholera, dengue fever, and Lassa fever and yellow fever. All differential diagnosis for this, which makes it a little bit difficult, uh, which is why it's important to do you know correct intake and figure out where people have been and if they've had contact with anybody who's, you know, had either one of these or been in contact with somebody else, just kind of almost like a contract, contract, contact tracing uh, for people who have uh, been in contact with those who may have been infected with the hemorrhagic virus. As far as symptoms, uh, you'll see the fever and the nausea. You'll get vomiting, diarrhea, muscle pain, weakness, fatigue, headache, abdominal pain. All of these, like I said, really generalized and could be, you know, a multitude of different things. 
Uh, one thing there is though that kind of sets it apart is you have this unexplained hemorrhage. So you'll see um, vomit with blood or diarrhea with blood, um, sometimes just you know oral mucosa. You'll see a lot of different bleeding. Uh, if you really want to, you can go on and just look at pictures um, that they have of people who have been affected with Ebola. And it's pretty nasty stuff. Uh, the symptoms generally appear about two days to three weeks after coming in contact. Uh, on average, I guess it's about eight to ten days you'll start to see symptoms. But uh, they're often mistaken for just the flu or malaria. Uh, the hemorrhagic symptoms, they kind of vary. Uh, in most cases, about 30 to 50 percent chance of actually having some kind of hemorrhagic symptoms. But this will be that mucosal bleeding. And uh, you'll see a lot of gastrointestinal and genitourinary involvement. So you might even have blood in your urine. As far as a laboratory diagnosis, uh, lab tests. So this is another one where you really need to isolate the virus to actually confirm that it is one of these. Uh, PCR testing is the best way to do this. One of the issues, though, is that uh, anytime you're trying to draw blood from somebody who has a bloodborne hemorrhagic fever, it presents a huge complication because there's a big risk, a big biohazard risk, any kind of mishandling, and uh, you could spread that to yourself or somebody else. And in fact, there have been cases where lab workers have been infected. So it's something that uh, anytime you're trying to do lab work on somebody who may possibly have one of these. Here in the US, we have designated centers for treating Ebola. So if you have somebody that has a suspected Ebola virus, um, there are special centers they can go to. There are also different hospitals have biosafety level or bioisolation units that they can set up. Um, I've done the training for, I haven't done it at my current hospital, but my prior hospital I did it. And they'll take you into a bioisolation unit. And then uh, before you can even go in and see somebody once they're isolated, it's uh, like a tie chem suit. So like the, the yellow kind of hazmat suit and then triple gloves, boots, you have a respirator, uh, you have nothing exposed really. And then uh, these units also have separate labs set up, so they have their own lab centers, they usually have their own lab technicians uh, who have been trained specially. They'll have their own respiratory therapists, their own doctors. So anytime you have a case like this, they'll, they'll kind of initiate opening. These units aren't always open, it's kind of a special, special needs type thing. Uh, at least at my old hospital. I don't know how it is hospital to hospital, but uh, it's pretty interesting, uh, taken very seriously, obviously, because you don't want this to spread uh, to anybody. So, but that's one of those things when you're doing lab work, it's a huge consideration. Uh, but that PCR testing, just to, you know, it's definitive confirmation is, is by virus isolation. So you can't just have symptoms and say, maybe this is it, maybe this isn't. You really need to have that. There are some uh, IgM and IgG testing that people do, or that it can be done, uh, but it's usually in the convalescent phase. So after somebody's had one of these hemorrhagic fevers, if they've survived it, uh, if their symptoms weren't that bad, they'll often do these blood testing just to kind of see, it's really for monitoring, for epidemiological surveying, just to see who may have been infected and who wasn't. So I think they probably go into these areas where they've had outbreaks and will do blood work on people to see if, you know, if there were people who are asymptomatic or who were just never, you know, symptomatic enough to have been tested for it. Uh, there are some rapid diagnostic tests that actually were developed back in about 2016. 
Yeah, it looks like there are five of them so far that are approved for Ebola. Um, and they use kind of antibody antigen capture to tell whether or not somebody has been exposed to or has uh, Ebola. Uh, I didn't see any for the Marburg virus. As far as treatment, um, so treatment really, once you have the virus, it's mainly supportive care. Uh, fluid and electrolyte replacement are really important. Uh, respiratory support if it's needed. And then antimicrobial therapy, so if if needed, uh, possibly antibiotics, if they think there might be some kind of uh, other infection related um, to this other you know, viral infection or with the viral infection. Uh, as of right now, there is no cure for it. There are a couple of monoclonal antibodies though that are being used. Uh, there's one called MAB114, monoclonal antibody 114. And then there's another one named REGN EB3. Uh, these are both being used to treat Ebola infections. Uh, they've had positive results in clinical trials. And for what I could find, they're the only thing being used at the moment. Uh, there are also recommendations for people who have Ebola virus, and if it doesn't look like it's going to end well, uh, palliative care, just to kind of make sure that if this person is going to end up dying from this, that they do it comfortably, uh, and they do it without pain and with as much dignity as possible, uh, which can be hard. Uh, but uh, palliative care, always a, a good option. It's one of those things, it's, you know, non, non-pharmaceutical, but, uh, you know, it is important uh, to consider the, you know, pain and end-of-life issues of these people. There are a few other kind of experimental uh, drugs that have been used, just uh, ion channel inhibitors, so amiodarone, which is commonly used for heart arrhythmias. Uh, that's been shown to have an affinity just for preventing filovirus entry into cells, at least in the lab. Uh, amiodarone, I guess it also interferes with some glycoprotein processing. So it has uh, inhibition of the fusion of the virus uh, to, the, to the cell membrane. So at least in the lab, amiodarone seems to have some efficacy. Uh, other than that, not a lot going on uh, that I could find anyway for Ebola. There is a vaccine though. So say, well, what can we do? Uh, there is a vaccine. It's now, uh, it was approved by the FDA, I think the beginning of last year. Uh, it's ERVEBO, E-R-V-E-B-O. And uh, this is a kind of a replication competent live attenuated recombinant vesicular stomatitis virus vaccine. So they essentially, they, they took some of the genetic material from the Ebola virus and made this virus from that, but there's no live virus in this vaccine. Uh, clinical trials were actually pretty good for it. Uh, there was a randomized study uh, during the 2014 to 2016 outbreak in Guinea, which is the largest to date. Uh, in that study, about 3,700 people, 3,775, who had close contact with uh, diagnosed Ebola cases uh, these people all received an immediate vaccination after coming into close contact. And of those people, there was no one who was vaccinated that developed Ebola. So just in that initial trial right there actually had really good results. Since then, there have been other studies that have shown really good efficacy for it. Uh, and right now, it's the only vaccine. And uh, as I said, it's approved by the FDA. So uh, it's being used right now uh, in Africa, uh, also for anybody who may be 
So I know that at least in the U.S., I think the only people who may be able to get it are people who work at these biosafety level labs uh, who handle Ebola, and then probably healthcare workers who may come in contact with somebody who has Ebola. Uh, but uh, other than that, uh, I think probably if you're traveling abroad, you may be able to get it, especially if you go into an area that has a uh, history of these outbreaks. So as far as Marburg virus, there is a vaccine right now in stage one trials. Uh, at least that's all that I could find uh, as far as information for a Marburg vaccine. There's nothing right now on the market or that's been approved by the FDA. So, so what if you have Marburg virus or Ebola, you've been you know, diagnosed with it, maybe you're getting some treatment for it, what's the prognosis? So most of these have a fairly poor prognosis um, due to the few treatment options. Uh, those monoclonal antibodies are probably pretty expensive and I would imagine if you're in sub-Saharan Africa, you probably don't have access to them. Uh, really high mortality rates, anywhere from like 30% to 70%. And then uh, depending on your age and nutritional status, and like I said, in some of these underdeveloped countries, which is where we're seeing it happen in Africa, uh, you're not going to find uh, the best health care or even just the, you know, in general, best quality of life or living. So definitely a high mortality rate uh, and really severe forms of the disease. It usually takes between like one to two weeks from symptom onset before you're dead. So really rapidly evolving, uh, quickly uh, causes quick death. Uh, usually, typically death is from just from shock, from multi-organ failure. So it's primarily liver and kidney failure that'll kill you. And uh, this also includes a kind of bleeding and clotting disorders. So you throw all that in there and it's just a, it's a recipe for a really nasty death. Um, if you think about just kind of, you know, one of the worst ways to die, like essentially kind of bleeding out and just being in shock. Uh, as far as outbreaks, so that's kind of everything from prognosis, treatment, diagnosis, uh, a little bit of a history on it. But I want to get to these outbreaks. So uh, you'll hear in the news every once in a while there's been an Ebola outbreak or a Marburg outbreak. Marburg, not quite so many. Um, there have been... Uh, many fewer cases of Marburg than Ebola. Not quite as common. Tends to have a little higher mortality rate though, at least from what I could, the numbers that I could crunch. Uh, since that first recorded outbreak of the Marburg virus in 1967, there have been 15 outbreaks. Uh, they've all occurred in Africa with the exception there was one outbreak in Russia that was related to a laboratory leak. But uh, of all these outbreaks, uh, the largest was in Angola and that was 2004 to 2005. Uh, this infected 252 people, and there were 227 deaths from it. So that outbreak alone had a 90% mortality rate. So it just kind of goes to speak. Like, these are, you know, pretty deadly viruses. Uh, in total census discovery, there have been about 387 deaths from Marburg virus. So that's uh, about an 80% mortality rate when you count up all the cases uh, and then uh, look at the deaths from it. As far as Ebola goes, Ebola is, uh, it happens much more frequently and they have much larger outbreaks. Uh, that first Ebola outbreak, there were the two of them in 1976. Since then, there have been 33 total outbreaks. All of these also originating in Africa. Um, the largest outbreak was in uh, Guinea and Sierra Leone and Liberia. 
And uh, this is the one that also led to uh, Ebola being spread to other parts of the world. So uh, there were a few cases in Europe and then those cases in the United States as well. Uh, this outbreak, it was responsible for 28,646 cases, just that one outbreak from uh, 2014 to 2016. And there were 11,323 deaths from that as well. Uh, you know, the size of this outbreak, the fact that it was able to spread to other continents, kind of helps to illustrate the concern when people start thinking about, well, what if Ebola, you know, if, if it got out of hand, uh, spread to different parts of the world, especially where they don't have adequate health care, close living quarters, you go to places like India or China or somewhere where people, you know, are just, even here in the United States, some areas, people just cramped in on top of each other. And you start having, um, you know, hemorrhagic fever kind of exploding everywhere. It could cripple healthcare systems and it could be, it just could be disastrous. So it's uh, definitely something to, to think about uh, and keep an eye on from that perspective. Not to say that it hopefully isn't a high likelihood of that, but it could happen. Uh, and just based on the mortality rate too, it's, uh, it's you know, can be concerning. Uh, in total, uh, there are about 34,935 reported cases of Ebola over those 33 outbreaks. And of those, about 15,385 deaths with a mortality rate of about, it's about 44%. So, you know, you're creeping upwards of 50% mortality rate uh, for Ebola. It's, uh, it's pretty high for any disease, especially for something that's relatively highly transmissible too. So... Uh, the CDC, thankfully, you know, it does have guidelines. I'm going to, on Twitter, post just a few links, uh, some to the CDC, uh, and I'll see what else uh, I'll throw up there regarding this, because right now it is kind of a topic uh, that's been in the news because of this Marbury outbreak right now going on Equatorial Guinea, and I'll, uh, I'll throw some links up there. You know, CDC it does have guidelines for hospitals uh, and the regional treatment centers here in the U.S., so, you know, hopefully it's not something we ever have to worry about here uh, or in any other part of the world. And it's kind of hopefully with these vaccines, too, we start to see uh, more of a reduction in these outbreaks and then possibly to a point where it just isn't happening at all anymore or so isolated that it's, it, it doesn't have the, the chance to spread. But uh, to that point, you know, it's, it, it does suck that usually it's it, poor old Africa uh, catches the brunt of it just because they are kind of a it's underdeveloped in a lot of areas and they just don't have the resources to to really treat these types of infections so so that's kind of the filoviruses like I said not super long um, tried to cram a bunch of information in there but uh, let's get to our death count so not gonna be a super high one at the same time uh, this is a disease that's only been really diagnosed for the last 50 years or so, not even 50 years. So we'll, we'll see what we get here. So uh, for those of you who, who are new to the podcast, at the end of the podcast I'll try and figure out uh, how many people a certain disease has killed over X number of years, however long it's, it's been you know, purported to be around. Uh, like I said, with these two, only about 50 years. Uh, what we try to do is we'll, we'll take uh, the total height of our dead bodies uh, and then we'll try to stack them to the moon, uh, reach the top of the Empire State Building, or wrap around the Earth. And it's, I know it's kind of macabre, but I do this just to kind of illustrate that, uh, that it's, it's a micro 
organism's world and we're just living in it and that uh, a lot of times some of these diseases you don't think are very deadly but have a really really high mortality rate and uh, kind of makes you think sometimes that we're pretty lucky to live in an age where we do have vaccines and we do have antibiotics and we do have treatments for these ailments but uh, all right here we go uh, so <laughs> let's see so in total we have where am I all right, so here we go. So, total of 15,772 deaths from these filoviruses. Uh, if we take that, we'll multiply it by the average height of a person today in the U.S. at 5 foot 5 inches. We get 85,432 feet. It's about 16 miles. Uh, if we're trying to get to the moon, which is 238,900 miles away, we would only get about the uh, 0.00007% of the way there. So not getting very far. Uh, if we tried to stack our dead to reach the top of the Empire State Building, it's uh, about 1,454 feet tall. We could actually reach the top 58 times. So, And then if we wanted to try and wrap our dead around the Earth, the Earth has a circumference of about 24,900 miles. Uh, we'd only get about 0.006% uh, of the way there. So. Like I said, not super impressive, but what is impressive about these viruses is just the high mortality rate. So if you look, you know, anywhere 30 to 70 percent, uh, some of those outbreaks as much as 90 percent, pretty deadly, pretty nasty stuff. Uh, hopefully they don't, you know, ever get to a point where they mutate and become something even more than where they're, you know, transmissible via some other vector beyond uh, contact. If they were ever to come, you know, become a... Uh, particulate or you know airborne or droplet uh, spreading disease it could be really really bad so but that's filoviruses uh, I will uh, like I said I'll post some stuff on Twitter uh, some different links uh, regarding just different updates the Marburg outbreak right now I'll keep on top of that don't really have any other updates uh, this is my second episode this week so uh, thank you for those of you dedicated listeners who keep downloading I appreciate uh, any feedback any suggestions uh, anybody wants to hear about a typical organism give me a heads up or even something else like I said we you know this is you make me sick so it doesn't just have to be uh, microorganisms it can be something else we've done you know acute radiation syndrome so it has absolutely nothing to do with microorganisms but still makes you sick so uh, any suggestions, please let me know. Uh, you can reach us uh, email uh, at youmakemesickpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at makemesickpod. So thank you all again. Uh, and remember, don't forget to wash your hands. I got a fever. Put that cookie down. Now!